Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 30th, 2018. This is episode 2320 of the Survival Podcast. And today's show is going to be kind of a back-to-basics fundamental show called 10 Basic Preparedness Questions. Answered. This is going to be a good one to share with friends and family, guys. Um, I feel we need to do more fundamental shows than we've been doing lately. I, I like doing all the advanced topics and things like that and all the life skills and all, but I think fundamentals are important. And I almost called this show a beginner's show, but I don't really feel this type of show is really a beginner's show. It, fundamentals is a better word for it. Back when I played various sports, even when I got to an advanced level, we often worked on the same fundamentals we had started with, say, 10 years earlier that everybody already knew. And there's a reason. In any discipline, when your fundamentals are solid, everything you add improves things. But when your fundamentals are weak, the opposite happens. Everything you add to what you're doing makes things worse. So today I'm going to answer 10 basic questions on getting prepared. Should be a great show, like I said, for all the new listeners alike, and a great one to share with your friends and family. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsors of the day, number one today is Western Botanicals. Tell you what, I don't talk about herbs in today's show, but I probably could have worked it in. Um, having the ability to use natural, safe things to heal yourself, to tonify yourself, to make yourself feel better, to know what herbs in your own backyard might be beneficial to you it is an incredible life skill. It really is. Uh, and the place I go to get the herbs that are not growing in my backyard or to get advice when I need it is Western Botanicals. Been with the show now like seven or eight years. Uh, they do a great discount program for MSB members as well. Just a great company with real people that really care about you that will really answer the phone and talk to you. And you'll be talking to people in Utah, not people in New Delhi. Not that there's anything wrong with talking to people in New Delhi, but when I call a company and I want to know, like, how do I order this? Or when will this be back in stock? Or where is my order? I like to understand what the person on the other end of the phone is saying. I'm just saying. Uh, Western Botanicals, you'll always be able to do just that. Check them out again. Real people that really care about you. Next up today is Ready Made Resources. Ready Made Resources is the company that does what it says and says what it does. It's just that simple. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready made, ready to go, point, click, and buy on their website. Great service, uh, great product line, great pricing, great people. Been supporting the show. Another one of these sponsors been around since almost the beginning. Uh, I'd say nine years. I mean, they were like, uh, Safe Castle came in and then Ready Made came in, one or two sponsors after them. So they've been with us eight and a half, nine years, about as long as you could be a sponsor. So remember that when you need something for your prepping need, Ready Made Resources probably has it, and they support the show that you listen to on a daily basis. Next up, let's take a look at the day in history. We're going to go back all the way this day in history, October 30th to 1735. One of our founders was born on this day in 1735. Which one? John Adams. He was born uh, the son of a farmer and a descendant of Plymouth Rock Pilgrims. He was born in Braintree, Massachusetts, enrolled in Harvard University at age 16, went on to teach school and study law before becoming America's second president. He was one of the main forces that enabled the colonies to organize and actually declare independence from England. And 
one of the chief negotiators that was able to bring people together in spite of some of his temperament problems. Um, he, Jefferson, and Franklin were really the architects within the Continental Congress to gain consensus. He had a great friendship with Jefferson, who admired him greatly. Washington, of course, of course, became the first president, and Adams the first vice president. Upon the time that Washington decided it was time to leave the public life, and two terms was enough for any man to serve as president of a new nation, Adams became president and Jefferson his vice president. Um, under the election policy of the time, the way that worked was the guy that got the most votes became president, and the guy that got the second most became vice president. So, for instance, if that was, rule was still in place this time around, you would have probably had Donald Trump as president and Hillary Clinton as vice president. Can you imagine that? Well, these guys might have been friends going in, but it was kind of like uh, you know, one of those things where you're, you're friends until you actually are both trying to get things done in a different way. Uh, they became pretty much bitter political enemies during uh, Adams' presidency uh, and then continuing through Jefferson's presidency. Jefferson, through surrogates ran very very aggressive attack articles they call it the campaign advertising of the time really nasty stuff and Adams did fire back one of their chief places they had a big uh, difference of opinion was one on the aliens and seditions act and Jefferson thought that was very despotic uh, something that a thug would do and uh, they also had a big difference of opinion on how the nation should should proceed Jefferson favoring an agricultural-based economy and Adams favoring a more industrial-based economy. But these really had to do with how the Federalists and Anti-Federalists, eventually Republicans, felt about debt at the time. Um, agriculture as an industry in this country was largely debt-free, and that was not just because of slave labor. There was agriculture throughout the country, not just in the South. Just one was dominant versus the other. Um, but the way that people farmed back then just kind of led to self-sufficiency, and therefore it kept debt down. And Jefferson favoring power in the states, power at the local level, power of the individual, um, understood that debt was a mechanism of control. Adams and the Federalists also understood that debt was a means of control, and that's why they liked it. The, the states would have to enter into debt and therefore be more beholden to the federal government. So that was a big bifurcation that I think gets missed. It was not so much about industry versus agriculture, but the concept of debt versus debt freedom. And, uh, of course, it all kind of got blurry. The good news for Adams and Jefferson is they rekindled their friendship after both of them left the public specter and uh, proceeded to write letters back and forth to each other as friends for the rest of their lives. Um, and then eventually both of them dying. Fittingly, it seems, on the 4th of July in 1826, only a few hours apart. Um, Adams' last words were, Thomas Jefferson lives. If you want to look into this man's life, and, and, and a good one, one that doesn't just show all the good, it shows the bad, the flaws, etc. Um, the HBO miniseries John Adams was absolutely outstanding, and uh, you'll, you'll not learn everything I said, but you'll learn a hell of a lot more than what I said. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into these uh, ten basic questions. Um, when I do a show like this, I always kind of have to profess it with, I'm not saying this is everything, 
I'm not even saying my answer is one of like the first questions, what are the top five most likely disasters a person would be likely to experience, are necessarily 100%, you know, I'm, I'm not claiming to be the expert that says these are the five. This is my opinion. Uh, almost everything that's put out on this show, unless I'm reporting a fact, is my opinion. And, you know, I could probably, when I limit myself to five particular things in some of these questions, I'm doing it for time purposes. Uh, so I'm pulling the things that I think will most resonate with people and most likely uh, be necessary to be addressed in their lives. Um, just so we're clear on that. Um, so I do want to start out with that. What are the top five most likely disasters a person would be likely to experience? And I, I've talked before about the inverse relationship of impact scale versus probability. The thing that affects the most people, like global disasters, actually very unlikely that you're ever going to experience it. But if it affects just you, it's highly likely that you'll experience it. And that, that comes through this list pretty well. I'd say the number one most likely disaster that a person is going to experience in their life is a job loss. I, I'd say this is something that hits at least half of all people at some point in their life. I, I haven't ever met many people where if I go, did you ever lose a job? They say, no. And, you know, I think sometimes people don't want to talk about that because there's a stigma with, well, you were fired. Well, maybe you were fired. Maybe your company downsized. Maybe your job was eliminated. You know, maybe your company got bought out. You know, I've been through a lot of stuff like that in my life. Wasn't necessarily that you did something wrong, but a company buys your company, your job's redundant, and they just merge the two, and out the door you go. There, there's, you know, there's that type of thing. And there's honestly people sometimes get fired. Sometimes people are in the wrong profession. Eventually it makes them miserable, and the employer does what the person won't. They end the relationship. But that's a, a very likely one, and it is a disaster, especially... The older you are, the longer you've been living your life, if you're not prepared, the bigger the disaster it is. You get fired when you're 19, you don't really give a shit. You go have a beer that night and think, I don't have to get up early tomorrow morning. right? If you're 34, let's say, I'm just picking a random number out of my butt there, and you have two kids and they're in activities and stuff like that, and you've been making a decent income, but you don't have a really good savings, and you lose your job for whatever reason, and your income is you know half or more of the family's income. That's a disaster when you think I got to make my mortgage payments, I got to you know all the stuff I got to pay for. Now, if you're well prepared, guess what? Back to being 19. Well, gee, I don't have to get up early tomorrow. I think I'll go have a beer with a friend tonight, talk to my wife about what we're going to do, and figure out where we're going to go. But we need planning for this because it's not just about finances. It's also about sometimes people are in professions. They're working for that one really good employer in their area, and if they lose that job, now you're talking about uprooting family and having that redundancy. So that's a very serious uh, disaster for people. It's also when people get over because they have no choice but to. But it would be much better if we had a plan for if it happens. Uh, the next one is serious or terminal illness, and I'll also include in that injury. So an auto accident that paralyzes you or a member of your family. A physical assault where somebody is seriously injured or killed. Uh, again, or a cancer diagnosis or something like that. Um, people don't generally think when they think of the world of preparedness about these things. We live in a time and place where depending on the numbers you look at, anywhere between one in five and one in three people get some sort of a cancer diagnosis in their life. And of that, you know, probably one is either terminal or seriously likely to be terminal. Um, of the three to five. That's 
that's high odds that you're going to deal with it. And if you don't, that you're going to deal with it within your family and, and significantly high that it'll be within your nuclear family. And so this isn't something that we can plan for from the standpoint of, well, if we get cancer, we're going to do this because every situation is different. But all of the things we talk about with basic preparedness, with financial management, life skills, lifestyle design, etc., don't make cancer go away. They don't guarantee that you're going to win the fight. They don't make it not a complete and total horrible thing you have to deal with, but they make the possibility of you getting through it intact and whole as a family unit, as a person, higher. Now, there are things where, and, and this is the pragmatism of preparedness. What if a nuclear bomb goes off over your head? Well, your problems are over. If you get a cancer diagnosis, it's advanced, you know, advanced stage pancreatic cancer, you need to make your final arrangements. Because that's, that's the reality that you're in when you're in that situation. But if there is a way forward, you're going to be better off if you're prepared. And if there's not, your family's going to be better off once you're gone. Storm damage is the next one. And I'm throwing all of it. Wind, water, ice, etc. So it could be if you're in certain areas, tornadoes are the bigger threat. Certain areas, hurricanes are the bigger threat. You know, certain areas, ice storms are the bigger threat. Certain areas, floods are the bigger threat. And I would put mudslides in with floods, you know, in, in a lot of situations. Um, this obviously is something that most people have been affected by some time in their life. Uh, I went for a period of nine days with no electricity in a very cold winter in Arkansas just a few years ago while I was doing the show. Um, the only reason you guys didn't hear more about it when it happened is it was during the, my Christmas shutdown period. Uh, so it could have been a real miserable experience. My son came into town. He flew into a Hot Springs Airport on one of the little puddle jumper planes. You know, and he was up with up there with us for about half the period of time that it was, and it's just the three of us up on the mountain with the neighbors. Um, and so that could have been a very, very non-fun period of time through Christmas because we had preparedness items in place, and with where we lived, we thought about our individual risks. We had generators, etc. When the neighbors came by to check on us, we had the tr Christmas tree lights blinking. We had steaming. Uh, turkey sitting on the table with a big pot of gravy and the football play, uh, game going. So it, it, it didn't really affect us much at all other than it was too dangerous to drive down the daggone mountain for quite a few days. And we were happy when the power came back on and it wasn't all the conveniences of having your grid up and what have you, but it wasn't really a big deal. It was actually kind of fun. Um, so That's an example of storm damage that a lot of times people don't think of. Ice is heavy, trees come down, lines come down, whatever it is, that's a high potential. The next would be fire. And fire is a disaster that can be local area, it can be widespread fires like some of the evacuations we saw have to happen this year, or it can be just your house. And, and so it's another reason to be prepared. And it's not, it's again, it's not something that we specifically prepare for, but all the things that we do to be prepared help us if we're in that situation. And different things might help us. But this is a case for having an inventory, which you got a camera. Take a picture of everything valuable in your house, put it in a folder, and I mean an electronic folder, and have it backed up somewhere off-site um, with what the item is and what it's worth. Because if your house burns down, either because just your house burned down or because your whole neighborhood burned down, 
the more documentation you have, the more you're going to be able to get from your insurance company in putting your life back together. And fire is a disaster. We had a show where a person that went through a house fire where just their house burned down came on the air with us several years ago and talked about how life-altering it is. And the more prepared you are, the better off you are when something alters your life. And I would say the fifth, most likely, are specific local threats. So that's specific to you. If you live on a volcanic island or you live you know, next to a volcano in, in the Pacific Northwest, you have a potential for that disaster to occur. Um, usually with modern science, we have some level of, of, of warning, foreknowledge, for et cetera, where we can start to respond. But that's a disaster you have to worry about. I'm not worried about a volcano in Fort Worth. You know, I mean, just I'm not. I'm not real worried about an earthquake. But if you live in Los Angeles, so things that might be specific to you, and they might not just be disasters. They could be things like if you live in certain urban areas, the concept of riots breaking out is a lot bigger risk than if you live in certain other areas. Right. So there are things that are very specific to your locale, and the more specific they are, the more likely it is that you might have to deal with them. So to me, those are your five biggest areas to think about in your planning. The next question I have today is what are the top five things to get into your preparedness plan kind of out of the gate? I would say number one is a plan itself, a documentation and plan kit, which is all the people in your family, their contact information, uh, all financial uh, information that you need to be able to get a hold of your banks, etc. Um, I've talked before about it, but you know things like account numbers, you can come up with your own way to encrypt those numbers, and as long as you know how to unencrypt them, you can unencrypt them. Sure, the NSA could figure it out, but that's not who you have to worry about. You have to worry about some thug that breaks into your car and grabs a book. So you want to make sure that anything that, that could be used against you for identity theft, you use some level of encryption. One of my favorite techniques of encryption is just you call it number off encryption. So if you had a, a, a number that was one, two, three, and you use a positive two, right, it would become three, four, five. And a lot of times with a bank account number, you can do that plus add a one to the front of it with a dash and a zero to the end of it. And with the number of digits they use, it looks like a phone number. But you'd be able to just do your plus two or whatever and leave off the ends and know what you're actually looking at. So that type of thing. So you need to have that documentation kit. That kit also needs to have um, where you would go. What are your what are your places you would bug out to? Who where would you go? Is it a hotel? Is it a family member? Three different places. Three different routes to each one. Uh, but have everything documented. One of those belongs in every one of your vehicles, and one of them probably belongs at the house. This is so if people are broken up. Everybody has a copy. Everybody can communicate with each other. And when your 17-year-old daughter is freaking out because she was at school and she has a car now and evacuation has been ordered and she has to meet you somewhere, you can say, turn to this page, look at that, go there, that's where we'll be. And all of a sudden, everything calms down. I won't go deeper into that, but that is something, a written documentation kit. You do it on a computer, print out multiple copies, put it in a three-ring binder, keep it updated. Uh, a basic blackout kit. We talk about this all the time. We talked about it a little bit yesterday, but just basically a you know a Rubbermaid tub or a canvas uh, tote or something like that that has in it you know flashlight, batteries, AM/FM radio that's battery powered, and maybe an emergency uh, weather radio. But mostly just the stuff you need 
to get enough illumination in your house to take whatever the next level of preparedness is that you have available. So your blackout kit doesn't include your generator and extension cords and, 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 and modified plugs and stuff like that. No, your, your, your blackout kit is just the first you know, 30 to 60 minutes that the lights are out kind of getting your stuff together. And it needs to be in a central location in the home. If you have a two-story home, breaking your equipment up into two separate kind of stockpiles, one upstairs and one downstairs, is not a bad idea. I think part of your blackout kit can be what are called power failure lights. These are lights that look like a nightlight, but when you plug them in, they just sit there. But if the power goes off, they come on. Some of them, you, you can remove them and use them like a flashlight, etc. Those are great. Get inexpensive flashlights that have lanyards. Hang one on the doorknob of every door in your house if you have a big home. That way, whenever the power goes off, you're never more than a couple steps away from a flashlight. And I know people say, well, I carry a little tack light in my pocket in my EDC, so I don't need it. I got a light on my phone. Yeah, well, what about when you just got out of the bathtub, the lights go out, you stub your toe, you got some soap in your eyes you forgot to rinse out, the lights go out, and the kids start screaming down the hallway. So you got to think beyond yourself, and you got to think about you and your weakest moment. You're, you, know, you, 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 you can go from there and figure out other things that might be going on that you, you know, might be great. But having those flashlights distributed through the house, teach the kids that. If you need the flashlight, use it. Put it back on this door. And that way when the lights go out, the kid knows every door has a flashlight on it. You can get a little cheap flashlights for three or four bucks. I wouldn't trust my life to them, but as a cheap convenience item. The LED lanterns we talked about yesterday, great in a blackout kit, but a blackout kit. A basic bug-out kit. Uh, I do a whole two shows probably on bug-out kits, but it's just like, stop call, you know, we like to call them bug-out kits as preppers. We like to sound a little tactical. It's a 72-hour kit. It's a bag that you can live out of for three days if you had to. If it'll do that for you, it's a good enough basic bug-out kit. This is so when you have to leave, you have some means of support. It's also, you know, I believe if your bug out kit doesn't stay in your vehicle and go to work with you, you're getting only half the value of it. What if you have to bug out from work? What if you have to stay at work? Um, if you if you don't try to make your bug out kit, and you shouldn't, you don't try to make it, a, you know, a, a, a backpack that you're going to hike from Georgia to Maine with, you know, with tents and stuff. You know, and you leave it be just a basic, if you grabbed it and you went to a friend's house to sleep on the floor in their extra bedroom for three days, you'd basically be okay. You got clothes, you got hygiene, you got a little bit of extra food and snacks for yourself, you got maybe some writing stuff in there, you got a little radio, things like that. That bag can be about the size of a kid's book bag for school and probably way less. And that means that when you get out of your car in the morning and go into the office, you just grab that and take it with you. We'll talk about weapons a little bit later. If there's any kind of weapons policy, obviously you have to adjust to that if you're carrying any kind of means of defense. But I don't really believe a gun in your bug out bag does a lot of good for you. An active shooter bag or something, that's different. That's a different scenario. We're just talking about you got to go somewhere. Think about this. One of the most, we just talked about it, most likely things that happen is somebody in your family gets hurt and has to go to the hospital or sick and has to go to the hospital. And you have to go now. If that bag would support you in the waiting room of a hospital for three days, it's pretty decent as a starting point. Uh, the next one, um, I think you need an emergency cash fund. 
I think the, 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 like one of the number one things that destroys lives is debt and bad financial decisions or making poor decisions to do something uh, to get by when you, you know, if you had a little bit of money on hand, you wouldn't have to make that poor decision. And it's a, you know, a thousand dollars is a good starting point. Work, you know, and, and when I say cash fund, I mean money. It doesn't have to be in, you know, bills. It can be in a savings account in the bank. You don't want too much cash on hand at home. You really don't. Or if you do, you know, you're talking about a safe, uh, a lockbox that's, that's secured in some other way additionally. Um, but about a thousand bucks cash is not a bad thing. And a way to mitigate the risk on that is break it up. 200 bucks in this drawer, 150 bucks over here. And, you know, remember where you put it. Don't be the squirrel that buried 200 nuts, but only remembers where one of them is. All right. Uh, but, Long-term, your emergency cash fund should be about $5,000 minimum. I know that seems like a big hurdle, but you should be saving money for your retirement anyway. So I've been asked before, if I have a 90-day cash emergency fund, which is a good long-term goal, uh, three months' worth of income, uh, it, does it count toward my retirement, even though it's not in a retirement account? And I say sort of, sort of. It, it's, it's, it's definitely part of your, your net savings, but it is there and it is liquid and has a different purpose than what you have, let's say, in a designated retirement account. But it is your money. You're just keeping it in a more liquid state so that if you need it, you can get to it. Uh, but an emergency cash fund is a big part. And 30 days of basic food, water, and needs. If you can stay in your house without leaving for 30 days and not necessarily be the happiest person, but in general you're okay, you're going to get through most of the things that you're able to get through anyway. Again, I do believe in some level of fatalism. If you get hit by a gravel truck driving a moped, it, it, I don't care how prepared you are, you're like the bug and squish, right? And it's gone. If you get certain diagnoses of certain medical conditions, again, you're in, a, in an end-of-life planning mode, but... If you can make do in your own home for 30 days without any additional stuff, then if you lose a job, you're okay for 30 days. You can basically, other than your basic bills, your electric bill, your, your mortgage, etc., other than your basic bills, you can just spend no money for 30 days. And if you have a good cash emergency fund, that's plenty of time to go find something to do to earn some income, and it's going to keep you from making poor decisions. So 30 days of, of basic needs. So that would lead to what is the easiest way to get a 30-day supply of reserve food? Do you go out and buy survival prepper food? And the answer is no. 30 days is something any family can and should do with basic deep, deep pantry planning. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a pantry, just wherever you store your food. Uh, the, the first step, keep a food journal. Keep a food journal. And all I mean by that is get a, a notebook or a, a, some paper and staple it together and throw it on the countertop in your kitchen. Every time you eat something, write it down. Every time your kids eat something, write it down. Every time your spouse eats something, write it down. Every time you use five different things to make dinner for the family, write them down. Every time one of them is easily stored without refrigeration, put a check mark next to it. Every time you use anything, you know, multiple times in a month, put a star next to it. The first stuff you start buying is the stuff that has a star and a check mark. You use it frequently, and it stores without refrigeration. Next time you go to the store, you're going to buy one or two of them. Buy two or four of them. Bring them home. 
put them into your pantry, line them up. Front to back, you're doing uh, basically you're doing basic inventory and stock rotation now. So your oldest stuff goes in the back. Your newest, your your your, your, your I'm sorry, your oldest stuff is in the front. Your newest stuff is in the back. You take off the front. You pull the cans forward. When you go to the store and you buy another one, you put it in the back. Keep doing it till there's no more room for that item. So that item goes all the way to the back of the pantry in a single line. Go do it with another item. Go do it with another item. Go do it another, until you run out of things that work in this plan. Keep doing that. Then look at the items that you buy that do require freezing or refrigeration and double up on those as much as works for you in your freezer situation. If you do that, it, it, you, you get to 30 days real easy. It might take several months. It might take a year. But what will end up happening is you're only buying a little bit extra every time you go, and eventually when you kind of get that whole system set up, you go back to not buying any extra at all. All you're doing now, you know, this, let's say item A, I don't want to even give you because everybody eats different stuff, but item A is some canned good, and you use it three times a month, and you used one can this week, and you're going to the grocery store, you pulled them forward, there's only room for one can to go in the back. Well, this week you buy one. If you end up needing to do two next week, it don't matter, you got plenty of them. And then what you do is you use opportunity buys to save money. So when that item goes on sale, if it stores long-term and you really use a lot, you buy five, six, ten of them, and you find a place for them, like a Rubbermaid tub under a bed or in a closet, and then when you take stuff out of the pantry, instead of buying new stuff, you go move the stuff in the tub to the pantry. Now you do that, you save money, you have a hell of a lot more convenience, you never run out of anything, and you have this extended stockpile of food to feed your family with for at least a month. Really, really simple. Um, next up, what are the six best life skills for the self-reliant lifestyle? I would say, and these are th things that I think are lacking in America today, especially as you get younger. And I'm not going to say the current generation. I'm going to say as you get younger, the skills are more lacking. So it includes me and how lacking they are. My generation, people that are 20 years older than me, they don't probably lack any of this stuff. Number one, cooking. Cooking is something that I'm excited about from a standpoint of the younger generation. Uh, yeah, there's kids that can't use a can opener. I know that. But the young generation, especially the, the kind of middle-tier millennials, mid-20s up to early 30s, uh, that group has discovered that food is cool. And, and, and it's expensive when you go to restaurants, but you can make a lot of the cool food yourself, and it's a growing thing, and that's good. But knowing how to cook really, really great is an incredibly important life skill. And it's not just so you can feed yourself. It's very helpful toward financial management because it allows you to save money. I know people who almost never eat at home. And if they, had, if they would cut out half of their meals out, and cook better food at home and took the money they saved and put it away, could put away thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year. And right now, they live at the edge of poverty. They're not poor, or they wouldn't be able to afford to do this, but they live in that one to two paychecks from poverty lifestyle. And that one change could change everything, and they won't do it. And it's a thing. 
And so cooking, I think, is incredibly important. Basic handyman skills. And I mean carpentry, basic auto mechanic stuff, how to fix a, a loose leg on a table. Basically, being able to use basic hand tools to do basic things or build basic things. Um, and, and this is something I think one of the big things that's made it lacking. I feel like my generation was the last generation where most students took some shop classes in high school. Industrial arts, metal shop, wood shop, etc. And it's kind of been phased out in a lot of places. Also, so my generation, Gen X, we're known as a generation that raised ourselves. We didn't have our parents around that much. Two-income households, latchkey kids is a term that comes right out of my childhood, etc. So the prior generation had a lot more dad telling the kid, here's how to saw a piece of wood. Our generation got some of it from our grandparents. You know, but when you were your grandparents, you should do more grandparents' fun things instead of work. Um, fortunately for me, I did learn a lot about it from my father and my uncles. Um, but by the time my generation was raising kids, you had kids, adults now that really didn't know how to do this stuff, so they couldn't hand it down, and then the school stopped teaching it. And it, it, it's, it's a big problem. It's also an opportunity for those of you that want to be entrepreneurs. There's a good handyman can basically pay his bills anywhere in the country today. Unless you're in a place where there's only three people and you're one of them, you can probably build a book of business as a handyman. But I think instead of paying a handyman, it's a good idea to be able to do basic things. Situational awareness. This is something that people in general today suck at. If you're pumping gas with your iPod in your pocket, or your iPhone, I'm showing my age, huh? Your iPhone in your pocket and earbuds in, um, especially in a, a part of town where maybe you're not real familiar with, um, you're making a huge mistake. Because next thing you know, somebody could be putting something in your back, like a, a sharp implement to steal your stuff or your car. And situational awareness is bigger than just, well, when you go here, make sure you pay attention so you don't get rolled and mugged, right? It's also like being weather aware. You know, you can get a free app on your phone. Most of you probably have it from Weather Channel or your local weather station or whatever. And most people, they check it when, like, something's going to happen. Like, well, we're planning a barbecue next weekend. Is it going to rain? It's a good idea to get in that thing every day and just take a look at what's coming. You start Remember one of our big things, severe storms? And to know how to read radar, to know how to interpret some of it on your own, to have different ways that you can get information when a storm is pending and things like that, Down here, where I live and throughout the whole middle of the United States, it can very well save your life because we can have some of these tornadic storms spin up really quick. You know, So that's situational awareness. What's going on in the world? What's going on in the economy? Don't be the deer in the headlights. Goes, What happened to my 401k? Why is it a 201k now? That type of thing. Um, forest fires, etc. It amazes me. I talked to some of my neighbors when we had some fire, fires getting close here. They never did, but they were getting close And they didn't even know. It's like, dude, we can, by tomorrow, either they're going to have this thing under greater control or they may be coming here telling us to leave. They're like, really? Pay attention to what's going on around you. Pay attention when you go somewhere. What looks out of the ordinary? Pay attention when you drive to work. Certain things that are in certain places, do they disappear? Does something new show up? Learn to just pay attention and know what's going on around you. It's a huge, important life skill that's not really lacking uh, in modern times. Basic first aid. I think that's another thing that, like, when I went to school, we had CPR class in junior high school. We had basic first uh, first aid in junior high school. And we had it again in high school. 
And I don't think that's done anymore either. Um, people are worried that they're going to stop teaching cursive to kids. I, I'm more worried that they're going to stop teaching kids how to save lives and, and build a spice rack, right? These, I mean, these are things, these are practical things that people really do need in their life. And, and, and it amazes me how many people um, carry a weapon but don't learn basic first aid. And we'll say, well, what are you going to do, shoot a guy and go fix him up? No, I actually I'm not. And we won't get into why, but that's probably legally a really bad idea. But if you carry a weapon, what you're saying is, I realize that there could be threats to my body and the body of the people around me at any given time. That's why you carry a weapon. You don't carry it to be cool. You carry it because some lethal threat might be out there. Well, a lot of times a lethal threat ends up being not quite lethal, and the ability to save a life is huge. Plus, there's a million other ways people get hurt. We are relatively frail creatures. Understanding how to stop bleeds alone can save lives. Again, basic CPR skills, etc. So I think that's an incredibly important life skill that should be taught to our children and probably should uh, be more uh, taught in general and more resources made available in general for people day-to-day -day in their lives. Um, Self-defense. And self-defense isn't just carrying a gun. Self-defense is wrapped right into situational awareness, following one of the laws of life, right? Don't do stupid things in stupid places with stupid people. That's a huge part of self-defense, avoiding the situation in the first place. Again, tying it back into situational awareness. These two go hand in hand. When you go to a restaurant and you sit down to eat, look around. If someone came in the door and started shooting, where would you go? What would you do? This is not paranoia. This isn't, oh boy, somebody's going to shoot us any minute. It's just, hey, look, you know, is there access to the kitchen? I'm not worried about the fact that it's for employees only if I need to egress my ass out there, right? How would I handle my wife? What, what direction would I give her in this situation? If I'm carrying and I'm going to return fire, how am I going to protect her while I do that? What cover is available? If there's a fire and everybody panics, how do I get out? The mall. I don't go to malls, but if you do... Like if there's a fire, if there's some sort of threat, even if nothing happens but people think that something happened and there, you know, like a, a riot-type you know, stampede environment ensues, you've got a little kid with you, how would you protect them? Where would you go? That's part of self-defense, and it's part of situational awareness. I do think some basic uh, self-defense training is a good idea for people, primarily based on how to break contact and get away from a threat. I see stuff all the time about, you know, teach women karate, and that way if a guy tries to rape them. You know, great, but the reality is if you have a 200-pound man and a 120-pound woman, she can know all the karate she wants to, and he's going to grab her by the throat and slam her head into the wall. What she needs to know how to do is break that contact, cause pain, and get away, not wrap him up in some kind of judo hold that he's going to just smack her off. And I know, well, women can do everything a man can do. No. Physically, in general, no, they cannot. No, they cannot. That's why the stupidity with this transgendered crap and letting transgendered women who are actually men compete against women is so horrible that in a recent MMA-type fight, uh, a woman got her head cracked, her skull cracked by an opponent who's competing as a woman and actually a guy. I'm sorry if it offends you. Tough shit, there are physical differences between men and women, and this needs to be taken into account with self-defense planning, which is why I believe a good concealed carry gun and training to go with it is one of the best things you can do to make women able to defend themselves. 
because getting a 38 caliber hole anywhere in your body, but especially center mass in your throat, your mouth, or your head, ruins your day and stops your shit fast. Okay? So that is part of self-defense as well. Um, and then the next one is kind of the boring one, but one of the ones most lacking is basic financial management and discipline. Not just learning how to write a budget. Not just learning how to budget your, your or balance a checkbook. Not just learning like, okay, this is my savings account. Also discipline with spending. Even if it's in your budget. Learning to look at something and go, yeah, I'd like to have that. But I'm gonna, if I still want it next week, then I'm going to buy it. We taught my son this to the nth degree. We, at times, would actually delay a purchase even past the point that we had made the decision just so he would notice what we were doing and observe it. We had a, it was one piece of furniture we wanted one time. We went and looked at it five times before we bought it. We bought it on the fifth time. It was kind of at a store where when we were making our rounds. It was always available to stop by and look at. And by the fourth time, we knew we were going to buy it. I said, no, we're going to do this one more time because he's paying attention. And I want him to learn from it. And this is one of my daughter-in-law's biggest complaints about him. He always says we need to wait and make sure we really need to buy something. And my response is, that's because of us, and you should thank us, because he's managing your money so that you guys don't end up broke. And she always, you know, I want to say, in the end, she graciously accepts it. But she's frustrated by it, and she's frustrated by it because it wasn't how she was taught to be with money. She was taught to be overall responsible But when it came to spending small amounts of money, oh, what's life if you don't do that? So she's a spendaholic. But she spent, I only spent five bucks on this. I only spent ten bucks on that. Add that shit up at the end of the month, and it's hundreds of dollars. And some of the shit's sitting in your closet. You haven't even looked at it. That's beyond budgeting. That's discipline. And if you take a, a person today and you give them those six life skills, cooking, basic handyman type skills, situational awareness, first aid, self-defense, and financial management and discipline, they're going to be a lot better off. The self-defense and the situational awareness help you even if nothing goes wrong. And that's a big thing we teach here, right? Live the better life if nothing goes wrong or if something goes wrong, right? To be able to handle tough times and good times, everything working all the time. The person that has situational awareness, not paranoia, situational awareness, and a means to defend themselves and others, walks through life confidently and they make better decisions. And they're less likely to be a victim. Because another thing that pisses me off is when I see like these memes on Facebook and they show some guy like ready to go bare-knuckle boxing or something. It says, teach kids to defend themselves so that they won't be bullied. There's some legitimacy there, but it's oversimplifying the problem. Bullies don't bully kids that can stand up to them. They bully kids that physically they can bully. And they get in little bully packs, and then they get together, and if you want to defend yourself, you're defending yourself against three that are bigger than you. And I've met people, well, you can still learn all these things. Okay, right. And the guy's 160 pounds, and I'm about 220. And I'm like, okay, now you're, you're against me. Well, maybe, you know, and okay, now wait, by the way, there's two more just like me, and we're fixing to kick your ass. Now what are you going to do? Just make it real for you. That's how this kid feels. And at least you're a grown man, and at least you have options he doesn't. The kid in school doesn't have those options. 
But learning that type of self-defense mentality and walking with confidence makes the person, whether they're a bully or a mugger, less likely to choose you. Attackers like easy victims. Because all of the people that are like this, that are bullies, that are attackers, that go out and take peaceful people and go after them, 100% of them are cowards. It is the action of a coward. Because they're taking from another either for personal gain, like their money, or for personal pleasure, and they're choosing the victim that they know they can defeat, or at least they believe that they can defeat. And the person that walks with their head up, looking around with confidence, is not necessarily not going to be a victim. They're going to be less likely to be a victim. So all of this stuff helps, and the financial management discipline should speak for itself. Um, so people often say to me when I get this basic with it, well, what about the really big disasters? I call them Hollywood disasters. You know, a global pandemic, right? We say, we say zombies sometimes because if you're ready for zombies, you're ready for anything. But we don't really mean a zombie pandemic. We mean some kind of new illness or some mutation of the flu or something like SARS that becomes far more communicable or something like that. Uh, or, you know, what, what about something like a global economic collapse you know, that makes the Great Depression look like a joke or what have you? Here's the, the fundamental realities of this stuff. Number one, for stuff like that, you can only be so prepared. You know, it is not practical, in my opinion, to have a bunker in the middle of Montana with 10 years worth of food in it under the ground and go live in a hole for a decade. It's not practical. I I'm not going to invest my resources in that. If you want to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a purist libertarian. You should be able to do whatever you want to do, but I'm not going to advise people to follow your lead on that. I think that is foolish. There is only so much you can do in these situations anyway. And if you take the steps to get basically prepared, all of these situations, unless you're the ground zero, first one taken out, they're never as bad as the TV makes them out to be, and there's always ways to adapt. It's having the cushion, that 30-, 60-, 90-day cushion in the situation to make the right decisions and do the right things. And it could be mundane in the same thing, right? And what I mean by that is you have an ice storm. You really need your paycheck. So you risk driving to work and you end up crippled and paralyzed from the neck down. But if you're well prepared and financially disciplined, you tell your boss, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not risking my, this happened with my, with my wife. They tried to guilt her to go into work one day when we had really nasty light coating of ice everywhere. And I said, they're, they're not going to come feed you with a spoon when you're in the hospital. I am. And then I'm not working, and you're not working, we have no income. You tell them to go saw it off. And if they need somebody to explain it to them, I'll do it. But we were in a position where we could have, we didn't, we're not, like, we, she misses a day of pay. Okay. I mean, I'm not celebrating it or anything, but it didn't change the temperature of the water in our pool. And if they had said, well, you're fired, well, first of all, you're going to get your ass sued for doing that. And it's not likely anyway. But second of all, okay, then she gets another job. So what? So what? She's well prepared. She's got a current resume. We practice what we preach. We got to have a financial reserve. She's a freaking nurse. To get another job in 15 minutes, if she really wants to, you're lucky she's there. And that's, a, that's confidence. See? That's back to the same thing with situational awareness and self-defense. Self-defense in your career is being prepared to go get another job. 
the more prepared you are to do it if you need to, the more you're like, you're lucky, I work for you. And when you really believe that, and you, you got to be good, you can't suck, and you're good, your employer knows that. And when you have to make a decision like, I can't come to work today because fill in the blank, and it's not a chronic bullshit excuse, you know, my grandmother died again. How many grandmothers do you have? Like 16 or something, right? When it's not that, they deal with it even if it don't, they don't like it. It's the same thing. It's pattern recognition, the same thing over and over again. Um, people also ask me, we do a lot on gardening and stuff like that. What role does growing your own food play in preparedness? Is it, do you have to do it? No, you don't have to do it. You do not have to do it. I, I don't actually believe that gardening is so much a thing to be prepared for a disaster as a way to live that better life on a daily basis. Uh, I believe it's good for us emotionally and spiritually to grow our own food. And I believe that the food that we produce is better quality than that which we can buy. And I believe it overall reduces our financial burden in procuring food by buying it. And that leads to better financial management. So I believe it helps shore up our whole life. But if it's not your thing and you don't want to do it, you don't have to. Um, and if you don't have the means right now because you live in an apartment or something like that and there's really not a lot you can do, then I think it makes sense that you just don't worry about it. But I think that if you do have it in your life, it does shore up the ability to be prepared. It and if you're good and it doesn't take long to become good at it, you figure out what works in your area with your skill set, you end up producing a surplus, and then if you learn to preserve that surplus, that now contributes to your, your deep pantry and your ability to feed yourself without an income long term. Right? So I think it plays an important role and a positive role, but not a necessary role. Uh, next up, we talked about self-defense. People always have arguments over who should carry what. And as far as guns. So if you're going to carry a gun, what gun should you carry and why? I believe that there's really two types of people. I did a meme on this and it made people really upset. And I said, basically, the difference between a Glock guy and a 1911 guy is a 1911 guy tells you why they carry a 1911 and a Glock guy tells you why you should carry a Glock. Made a lot of Glock guys upset. It's true, though. And I think most people that are what you call 1911 guys are really not 1911. They just like 1911s. Maybe they carry that. But they generally don't bother telling you why you should do something else. And I think that most people who are reasonable and not some sort of cult follower of any specific gun, Glocks just seem to be the ones that do the most of this, would agree with this answer. You should carry the gun that you can afford, that carries well for you, that performs well for you, that you have confidence in, and you know how to handle malfunctions in it. That's the gun you should carry. I don't care what it is. I don't care who makes it. Well, some guns are jam-o-matic. So if you, go, if you go get a gun, and you go shoot it, and it constantly jams, straight it in and get another gun. If you go get a gun and it functions you know, flawlessly, then I don't care if it's a Glock or a SIG. or well, I don't care. Well, it needs to be at least a 9mm. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I actually think 9mm is a great carry round. I really do. But it doesn't have to be a 9mm. I carry, you know, even though I say I'm a 1911 guy, I carry a, a SIG 239 and 357 SIG. Why? Because that gun carries so beautifully for me, and it shoots very much like a 1911. It's got the same sort of grip angle, the same... It feels like a 1911, even though it's got some different gear on it. 
I grew up shooting 1911s. That's why I have confidence in them. I shoot them better than I shoot Glocks and other guns. When I picked up the SIG, I shot it as well as the 1911, and it carried more comfortably for me. All of a sudden, I like this gun. But it was a 40. Wasn't really fond of 40s, but hey, it's good enough. Then a buddy said, hey, you know, you can just drop a $100 barrel in there and convert it. Really? Okay. But, but that's what I like. Right? If you find a subcompact that fits well for you, that you're going to carry every day, and because that's what you find with the way you dress and where you live, that's what you're going to be able to carry every day, and you go train with it, and you are effective with it at the ranges that it's intended to be used at, that is a fine carry gun. What does this make a model? I don't give a shit. And I think that's the only honest answer to this question. Because what good is a gun that so-and-so gun guru says is the perfect gun when it's at home, in your safe, instead of on your person when somebody's shooting at you or somebody else? What good is a gun that you're not confident in your ability to shoot it well versus a gun that's, that so-and-so gun guru says is the wrong gun that you shoot very well, that you have confidence in your ability to execute with? Right? So... It's whatever gun carries comfortably for you that you can afford, that, that, you ca that carries comfortably on your body, that you can shoot well, and that you're familiar with the operations of. If it's a hammerless, titanium, light-framed revolver, and that just happens to work for you, I, don't, I have no problem with that. The, the reality of confrontations where armed citizens use guns as as follows. They are successful more than 80% of the time, and the average confrontation lasts nine seconds or less. I, I, when, when I talked about this before, and I talked about all the guys who get super tactical, doing multiple reloads and stuff like that, I'm like, tell me a time when armed citizens ever were in a situation, not law enforcement, armed citizens, where anybody even reloaded once. And you know what? Somebody did it. They found one for me. One. And I said, find me a second one. They ain't got back to me yet. I'm not saying not to train for that. In the end, though, it comes down to this with guns. The individual making the right decision of when and how to use that gun in a, in a, a lethal force situation will be 99% more important to that person being successful, then will be the name stamped on the barrel or the caliber uh, diameter of the hole at the end of it. And that's just a fundamental reality because we know statistics. We know how often these types of things happen, and we know that not everybody carries a Glock 19. We know that. We know that people carry all different kinds of guns. And yet... It's, it's not like, well, the guys that carry Glock 19s are successful. You can't, there's never been a study done like that, and there would be no point to. You'd get no difference. You'd get no difference whatsoever. And the gun snobs, you guys can sod off. You really, I, I, if, guns, if every gun that you say didn't work didn't work, there'd be about 500 manufacturers out of business. I'm just saying. Uh, next up, what is the role of EDC in preparedness, and what should you carry in an EDC kit? EDC, for those that don't know, is everyday carry. Here's the most important thing about your EDC. Your EDC is EDC, not SEDC, or sometimes everyday carry, right? Or SDC, someday carry, right? It's everyday. So the most important thing with your EDC is that it be things that you can naturally carry everywhere you go all the time. Otherwise, it's not EDC. 
If you carry a gun, I consider it part of your EDC. If you don't, then obviously you don't have it in your EDC. I believe you need some sort of a cutting tool. I like having a small multi-tool. I like a way to start fire. I like having some amount of cordage. And I like a way to produce light. If you have that, and I'm not saying that's all that I carry, but if you have the ability to do those things, you're in pretty good shape. In particular, I carry a titanium base case, which is, it looks like a, like a kind of a larger pill bottle, like a little pill thing that goes on your keychain. Uh, it's about a little bit bigger around in your thumb uh, and about half as long, and it screws, uh, screws tight with a, an O-ring so it stays dry. I have some cotton in there that has some uh, petroleum jelly on it. I have a ferrocium rod on my keychain. I have a small knife on my keychain. Uh, it's actually a, a empty knives uh, talon. It's a great little knife. Um, additionally, I've got some paracord that's, that's put into... Uh, kind of tied into a key fob that would make an awful lot more cordage. Of course, if you really needed to, you could take the individual strands out of the parachute cord. I said paracord, really it's parachute cord. That's a, di a difference uh, there. Um, so I have all that on my keychain, and I have a little multi-tool called a Gerber dime, which has pliers, a little pair of scissors, a little file, uh, and the ability to you know basically turn screws with a Phillips and a straight-edge screwdriver. Uh, I, in general... In addition to that, I carry an EDC knife. A lot of times I carry a neck knife. Sometimes I carry a liner lock folder. Uh, and many times, even in addition to that, I'll carry uh, with me a small razor blade knife or I'll carry a Swiss Army knife. Depends, but some sort of implement like that. Um, I consider my belt part of my EDC. And a lot of times, uh, preparedness is knowing what you have for an individual situation Uh, a belt is quite handy. I don't believe in wearing cheap belts. I want something that's strong. Uh, so like SOE Tactical Gear makes some really great web belts. They hooked up two huge trucks with one of John Willis's belts, and the two trucks tried to pull each other, and the belt didn't fail. That belt's not going to fail if you need to use it for something, like to get somebody out of a hole. Uh, what I wear now is a belt that was made for me by uh, Lenwood Leather, uh, Jason Davies. And uh, I have no doubt that belt would hold up to just about anything as well. So that's kind of the basics of it. And then whatever else fits in your life. But you don't want to get it to the point where you look like Batman with a, with a bat belt. You know, your batarang and your bat spray and all that other stuff. Uh, and then some things, you know, maybe they're not EDC, but they're seasonal carry as well. Maybe there's times where it's a little easier to carry a little extra, so you do. Uh, but making sure that you know how to use what you have and you know the things that are you know in your possession at all times. Well, you know, do you have any cordage? Well, if you have shoes and they have shoelaces, you have cordage. Well, if you take those shoelaces out and replace them with parachute cord, now you have much more strong uh, cordage. They can do a lot more than the average shoelace. If I had to... I would lace a couple feet of parachute cord together, tie it to something, use it to lower myself. It would hurt like hell because it's so narrow, but I would trust it if I was trying to get out of a second-story window to get me a couple feet lower before I let go. I would trust my belt to do that. I would not trust the shoelaces that came with your, your Chinese-made uh, Nikes to do that. So that's the way to think about EDC. How do I rope it into what I already do? Um, next up, what is the biggest thing most prepper types overlook in their planning? It is the needs of others absent themselves. 
It's the needs of others absent themselves. For instance, when I talk about a documentation kit, one of the things I say that you should have in there is like people that can come and cut trees out of your driveway. And the immediate objection to that is I have a chainsaw and I know what I'm doing. I'll clear my own driveway. Well, what if you are not home and your wife needs it done? Because there was a storm while you were away on a business trip. Or the tree fell on you. What if the disaster that occurs happens at a time when you're at your weakest? What if you had one of those medical emergencies and you're in the hospital and now there was a natural disaster? It's not like nature goes, oh, gee, Joe's in the hospital. I won't have a tornado on his house today. Right? It's not how it works. It's not like, it's not like they, 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 nature takes pity on you when some other part of nature kicks your ass. And I think it's the biggest thing. Can your wife start the generator? Does she know how? How will the kids be of use in a situation where you're incapacitated? You know, a few years ago, I hurt my knee really bad. I was on crutches for a couple weeks. I was in a wheelchair for a couple days. There were a lot of things I couldn't do. It, it humbles you. And I think that is the number one thing overlooked. All the shit you can do that other family members can't. And you need to have a plan. And there's certain things maybe that only you can do. Okay, well then what is your two and your three and your four? Right? Two is one and one is none. doesn't just apply to stuff. It's not to have two knives in case you lose one. It's, okay, if you can't perform this task and something needs to be done, what can be done that's almost as good? What can the wife do? What can the husband do? Sometimes it's the other way around. It's not like, you know, women in general, I said it earlier, are generally weaker than men physically. Doesn't mean there's not things they can do that men can't do. And doesn't mean in some situations the man is not the weaker person in the couple. It happens. I've seen it, right? So there might be some situation or just the knowledge to do something. It might not be a physical challenge at all, but the mental capability to do something. Like, who handles the finances? If you have one partner that always handles the finances, doesn't matter which sex they are, what happens when that person ends up terminally ill and they're in the hospital getting radiation treatments and trying to beat the diagnosis at a time when you're most stressed financially and now the other partner has no idea how the finances are handled? I believe that one of the strongest things you get taught in the military is cross-training. No, I will never be as good a radio operator as a comm specialist, but I know how radio works. I was a mechanic. No, that radio operator will never be as good a mechanic as I am, but he knows how to do the basics of vehicle maintenance and to get it rolling again if there's any way he can do it at all, and we train each other. And we all know first aid because any one of us could get hurt. And it just keeps going from there. And I think in a family, it is fine for members of your family to be specialized in what they do, but everybody should have a little bit of cross-training on all the stuff so that if one side is taken out for any reason, temporarily or permanently, the other side can step up. And I do believe it's the biggest hole in most people's preparedness plans. Um, and then the last one I have for you today is, what's the biggest determining factor of survival in most situations? And the answer is the individual confronted with the situation. And it's their mentality. It's a belief that what they do matters and that there's something they can do. That is the number one thing. I have talked to oncologists that have confirmed this weird thing that they can't explain. And I think it is as simple as what I just said. 
that if they have two patients with the same cancer diagnosis, with the same prognosis, given there's any reasonable chance of survival, it's not 100% this person's going to die, but it's, a, it's, it's let's say, 60-40, and 40 is to survive, and 60 is that they're not going to make it past, let's say, two years or a year or six months or whatever. The patient that just does everything they're told to do and never questions anything inevitably is more likely to fail in their treatment than the one that wants to know, why are we doing this, what's my other options, what else can I do, etc. Even if in the end they both do the same things. Because a lot of times there's a mental component to beating an illness. There's a will to survive to beating an illness. It doesn't always work, but it's there. It's a factor. And the person that is the pain-in-the-ass patient, the worst one doctor I talk to, is the one that will inevitably beat the odds more often than the other because they know what they do has some level of impact. And if there's anything they can do additionally whether it's diet, whether it's you know a certain making sure they stick to a certain regimen, whatever it is, they're more likely to do it. And I believe if that affects cancer, which is one of those things that's so out of your control, that when it's something in your control, that it has a much deeper effect. The person that knows what they do matters is more likely to be ready to leave when they're told to because a forest fire is getting too close. They're more likely when they're hit with something in front of them that threatens their life or their safety or their security or their family to immediately say, what can I do? What can I do? There's always options. There's always options if the person survives. Okay, If there were no options, they'd be dead. And that might not be physical death. It could be something like financial death. There's always options unless... The, the, the result is predetermined. So then the question becomes, what are the options and which do I take? And sometimes you can sit down and make a plan and you can take a day or a week and sometimes that decision has to be made in a split second. Sometimes that is, I am in my truck, I'm doing 65 miles an hour because that's a speed limit. This person just pulled out from in front of a stop vehicle. I do not have time to come to a stop and not hit this person. Now what do I do? In my case, very recently, only a few years ago, it was, there's a truck in my lane on a wet road on a turn. It is going to hit me. Not, can I get out of the way? No. The point that I saw the vehicle, when we went back, my wife and I drove back through the area, we thought it was about two seconds between when we saw it to when it hit us. When we ran, we just did like a 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000 count. From where, you tell me where we could see it, and we were driving at the same speed, and it was 1, 1,000. It was less than a second. And in a second, I made the following decision. I'm going to get over as far as I can. I'm going to decelerate as much as I can. I'm going to turn my vehicle, but I'm not going to give the guy my door. He's still getting the front end of the truck, so I'm going to go as far as I can without giving him my door. Because if he hits me at this speed in my door, I'm going to be seriously injured. I hope this works. But I made that decision. And it was the right decision. And we ended up, the truck was screwed. We were okay. And I made all of those choices in that three quarters of a second. The reason I did that is because I'm some badass race car driver, because I'm not. It's because my mind is tuned to the concept, if something goes wrong, you have to do something now. I believe I owe a great debt to the United States Army for that. But then it's up to you to continue. You know, even if you have some sort of training that puts that in you. I haven't been a soldier you know, I've been alive longer as 
since I got out of the army than I was, you know, than, than I was alive until I got in the army, right? I, I've, been, I've been around a while. I got a lot of gray hairs now. People were making fun of me the other day on it when I posted a picture. So the only way that stays there is to continue to use it. And I think a lot of the skills that we talk about, too, you, just because you say you know how to do something, well, if the last time you did it was five years ago and you haven't trained on it at all, you're probably not very good at it anymore, no matter what it is. So I think you need to keep up with that, but you always need to remember, no matter how out of shape you are, how old you are, you know, how unprepared you are, how dangerous what's happening is, what you do matters. That's the single biggest factor in your survival and the survival of the people around you that you care about. So anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I want to do more shows like this in the future. If you guys have any ideas for shows that we can do kind of the back-to-basics, back-to-fundamental show, let me know in the show notes today or send me an email, jacketlessrevivalpodcast.com with TSPC in the subject line. And if you like this show and the work that we do, remember there's a couple of ways that you can support us. The, the, most, you know, the, the best way to do it, honestly, is become a member. If you're not a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade, please consider becoming one. For 50 bucks a year, you'll get discounts to a bunch of great companies. Uh, and those companies will give you discounts on stuff that you're probably going to buy anyway. If you use a few discounts a year, your membership pays for itself, and you get to support the show that you listen to Monday through Friday, five days a week. The other way, and this is the painless way, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you listen to this show... You know, please shop through T-Spaz when you're going to shop online. It doesn't cost you any extra money. It doesn't cost you really any extra time. You can get on over and see the deals of the day on Amazon and stuff like that. And you can see my daily reviews. Unlike a lot of people that do product reviews, I have a very strict policy for my product reviews. One, I either own and use the item, or I have owned or used the item. Or in a few cases, I don't need the item, but I know you guys are even interested in it, and I've put my hands on it, I've checked it out, and I know someone that knows all about it and uses it themselves. If it doesn't fit one of those, I do not put it up for review. It's not even I put it up for review and say it sucks. I just don't do it, and I don't recommend that you buy it. Um, and then the other criteria is that it, it, it you know, it'd be proven. If I buy something, I use it for a week, and I like it, I don't put it up right away. My wife would be like, well, you said you were going to put that on? I, yeah, and after I have it for a couple of months, I will. So it has to be those two things, and then I have to believe it's a good value. There are things that you, know, you can get them on Amazon, uh, but honestly, Amazon charges too much for them because they're bulky to ship or whatever, and I don't put those things on. If I recommend those, I say, go to the store and buy it. Today's item of the day is the Oster 22-quart roaster oven. I'm bringing it around because Turkey Day is coming. And the picture of the one on the website has a big old turkey in it. This thing goes from anywhere from about 200 degrees up to like 450 degrees. It's basically a portable oven. Um, we do a lot of stuff with it. We do like roasted potatoes and carrots uh, for the workshops. We're feeding 60, 70 people. But I think that most people, like Thanksgiving is really a perfect time for this. You take that big, uh, the biggest turkey you're going to get in a store. Now, not some of the, like, I raise these broad-breasted bronze. We have to take them apart. They won't fit in a real oven. I'm not kidding you. I'm talking 50-pound turkeys. But a 20, 22-pound 20, turkey, 18, 16-pound turkey, what most people do for Thanksgiving, will fit right in there. And you put that in there, and you roast your turkey in it. You get perfect control of the temperature. You get a perfectly done turkey. And all day long on Thanksgiving, Your oven's available. Is that not the most difficult thing when you're preparing Thanksgiving for family and friends? You know, the whole oven is taken up with this turkey. you got other stuff you want to make. That's one reason I love this thing. But, you know, basically it can cook a whole lot of food 
in a high oven temperature or a slow cooker temperature. I did six pork shoulders in two of them. So I have three of these things because we do large events and stuff like that. But I had uh, six big pork shoulders. I smoked them. I wrapped them up and I put them in vertically uh, into two of these things, set them to the lowest temperature, went to bed, woke up in the morning, perfectly tender smoked pork roast. So great product. Again, if I didn't think it was, I wouldn't recommend it. And, boy, this is the time of year. If you're thinking, how am I going to deal with this crap, go pick one of these things up. And remember the beauty. other reason I always recommend Amazon, if you don't like something when you get it, you print out a label and send it back. And that makes it very much so where I can be confident in my recommendations because even if it's a good product, if you just don't like it, you can return it. But you can always help us how? Shop online through tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. So now it's time for our song of the day. Like I said, since it is Halloween week, we are doing Alice Cooper. He fits well with the Halloween theme of the week uh, with his theatrics and stuff. But as I said yesterday, Alice Cooper is really kind of a down-to-earth, normal guy that has a stage persona. And he, I think he's always been pretty upfront about that fact. You know, this is this is my persona, not who I really am. And I think this song is really kind of a sense of social responsibility, honestly, um, to the teenage crowd that followed him heavily. Uh, by the time he released this song, it was 1991. He'd been around quite a while. And uh, the song is really an anti-drug message. Um, Cooper warns young people about the dangers and pitfalls of drug abuse and espouses the benefits of living a drug-free lifestyle. It also addresses suicide among teens and young adults and stresses that it should never be an option, no matter how depressed, lonely, or isolated an individual may feel. Uh, and again, the song Hey Stupid, spelled S-T-O-O-P-I-D, basically say, I, mean, I think the reason he took that approach of, of Hey Stupid is uh, basically don't, don't point to me. As, as an example of what you're, you're, you're choosing to do either, either with drugs or harming yourself, that's not what I'm advocating. I, I got a whole different philosophy here. You know, the, the, the opening lyrics to the song are, Hey, bro, take it slow. You ain't living in a video. And that's a direct statement, really, there. Look, this is not what you're seeing me do on TV. is not how I live my life and not how you should live your life either. Again, I think Alice Cooper's a pretty cool guy. I think it's a pretty good song. Um, and I think a lot of people that look to some of these you know, rock and metal types and see the imagery and have such a negative opinion of them, I think if you actually said, hey, let me read some lyrics to you, they'd be like, oh, that's pretty good. They just never listen to really any of it other than just, I don't know, they just have a, a stigma against it. Anyway, with that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.